The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads. Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are here for our satsang meeting of the week for our spiritual discourse. I have been asked in extension of our presentation about what is Tantric Yoga because you often hear that this school is part of the Tantric Yoga world. I was asked to give an, a presentation of what is Agama Yoga specifically in this world of Tantra. When we say Tantric Yogas, we mean Yogas with Tantric coloratura, Yogas with Tantric character. And there are several of those, there are many of those. Agama Yoga is primarily a type of yoga, but it is one of these forms of Tantric Yoga. To understand, first of all, its characteristics, I would like to comment with you upon some of the rich meanings of the word Agama. What does Agama actually mean? First of all, let's start with the Hindu tradition, because most of the yoga that we teach in this school <coughs> is an Indian style yoga and in the Hindu tradition from India uh, Agama, the name Agama in Sanskrit means in the Hindu context of things a traditional doctrine or a system which commands faith a traditional system, a spiritual system the Agamas, the texts which are called Agamas, because this tradition comes from a series of traditional texts, traditionally considered to be 64 in number, but this story with a numerology in the Indian tradition is a long story and we don't have time to approach it here. The Agamas are the primary sources and authorities in the Indian tradition when it comes to yoga methods and to the instructions of spirituality and of yoga. Most of the texts of yoga, either we talk about Giranda Samhita or Shiva Samhita or Hatha Yoga Pradipika, they would be included traditionally as Agamas. So yoga is based on the Agamas, at least most of the yoga that is performed today in the world. The Agamas, we can say then, are a non-Vedic collection of Sanskrit scriptures which are revered and followed even by millions of Hindus. The Agamic tradition is vaster than people usually know. There exist in the Indian tradition Shaiva Agamas, Vaishnava Agamas, Shakta Agamas. According as the Hindu culture, the Hindu civilization, is divided in various spiritual and religious streams. Each one of them developed their own Agamas. So the first meaning of Agamas is the tradition of the Agamas, the traditional texts of the Agamas. For example, 
to see how far this definition can be exalted through meditation, I'm going to read for you a short account from one of the highest forms of Agamic tradition of India, which we have in this school, which we share in this school, the famous Kashmiri Shaivism. In Kashmiri Shaivism, the greatest exponent, the greatest tantric master of the Indian tradition, Abhinavagupta in the 10th century, gives a definition of the word Agama as representing the tradition and as representing the scriptures. According to Abhinavagupta, the word Agama, which he translates as, and I quote, divine speech that forms the life of the other means of knowledge. Divine speech. Divine speech, it means that it's the equivalent of the Greek word logos, which is translated in English language Christianity as the word. In the beginning there was the word, and the word was with God, and God was the word. That word, with capital W, is called logos in Greek, and in the Sanskrit tradition, this divine speech is called vak, or paravak, the divine word, the primordial word, the word of God, the speech is at the level of the absolute. And Abhinavagupta, a very, very, very authorized tantric master, and again, a great reference in Indian tantric tradition, says Agama means divine speech, it means the logos, it means because those texts are coming from the divine speech, they are an illustration of the divine speech, and thus the Agama means divine speech that forms the life of the other means of knowledge. In this life, in this existence, sentient beings have various means of knowledge, by reading, by speaking, by seeing, by observing, by experience, by listening. There are many ways of acquiring knowledge. The backbone of all the means of knowledge is the divine speech, the essence. When you boil down all the means of knowledge, what makes it possible for the human consciousness to absorb knowledge? That we live this life, and by living this life, we actually evolve, we develop, we grow up spiritually. What makes possible this accumulation of knowledge which takes us out of the ignorance? Buddha himself said that the source of suffering is ignorance, and therefore knowledge destroys ignorance, and thus it destroys pain, it destroys suffering, and thus... Actually, it is the divine word, it is the power of the word that destroys, the, that gives knowledge, that is the backbone of all knowledge, and thus destroys ignorance. It is not without reason that in the Indian spiritual tradition in particular, the word, the divine speech, is given a primordial importance. Not only in the Bible, where God is the word, and in the beginning there was just the word, but even in the Indian tradition, and those of you who attended the first level of Agama teachings, you have there the lecture on Satya, on truthfulness, where you are being told clearly that speech equals consciousness. We have speech because we have consciousness. 
We humans, we have consciousness, we are conscious beings, because we have speech. Therefore, speech, as a matter of principle, the divine word, is the backbone of the consciousness, and thus it is the backbone of knowledge and of self-improvement. That is why the word Agama is a very big word, because it refers to the knowledge, it refers to this primordial speech. And according to Akhinavagupta, this word Agama, the divine speech, is the internal activity of the pure consciousness. If you want to use a Svadhisthanistic image, it's exactly like the word as it exists in the mind of God. When the divine consciousness speaks to itself, it speaks to itself at the level of the divine speech. It's the internal activity of the divine consciousness. It basically, this speech, consists in a firm hold of consciousness, in a firm awareness, because without awareness there is no speech, without speech there is no awareness. It consists in a firm hold of consciousness, and that Agama thus owes its name to that it allows one to know. The word Agama is made from the Sanskrit root gam, Gama, to know, and Agama, which is a long A, it's not the short one which means no. If it would be a short one, it would mean no knowledge. But Agama, the long A, it, it means the knowledge of all the aspects, the object known under all its aspects. It means a complete knowledge. It means the total knowledge, the divine knowledge. Whence we have the word Agama. Therefore, it is called an Agama, like for example a text, a traditional text which is called an Agama. An Agama then is an ensemble, is a gathering of such holes of consciousness. It's a gathering of revelations, of understandings, of ahas, of irikas, of realizations. That's what we call holds of consciousness, and it's a gathering of such holds of consciousness or convictions, beliefs, expressed in words, in human words. Yet, the tantric tradition acknowledges that the agamas, the texts and this tradition, trigger strong beliefs only under certain special circumstances, like Many of the people coming in a yoga school realize that their belief in themselves, their belief in the strength of their energy, of their body, of their mind, their understand, their belief in their relationship with the universe is stronger in a spiritual environment than when you are confronted with a wild world out there. And many people notice this difference. That's according to the tradition. The tradition says, the Agamas, in certain privileged conditions, you are like awakened, and then you understand, you realize that it is so. And in certain epochs and places, there are epochs and places where spiritual knowledge is more fruitful and others less so, and only to the people who are qualified for the understanding and applying them. This is exactly what Jesus, personifying God himself, and thus endowed with divine speech, when Jesus talked, he talked with divine speech, 
and he said, I am talking to you, but not all my words stay in you. Which simply says, one is talking, and five different people understand five slightly different things. They shall listen, but they shall not understand. They shall listen, but they shall not hear, says also a parable from Jesus' mouth, which shows that the words of Agamas, some of you have their soul on fire, and you realize that this is fundamental truth because you are ripe for it, and to other people they inspire less, and to other people they inspire nothing, or sometimes even a complete misunderstanding. That is why there are levels of consciousness of the divine speech and of the Agamic tradition, and though thus, people who are qualified for that, people who are ripe spiritually, then they apply them and give them credit, believing in these teachings and not believe, it's practicing them and obtaining the results. The Agama tradition have been the source of early yogic and self-realization concepts in India, as scholars fully agree. They have influenced thinkers and philosophers who sought an alternative to the excessive ritualism and sacrifices of the Vedic system of the time. Most of the Indian Orthodox tradition, as well as the Buddhist Tibetan tradition, they slowly, slowly drowned into ritualism, into a pro forma religion, like going to the Sunday Mass in the church. But actually the essence of any spiritual system is not so much the pro forma lip service, social activities thing, as much as it is the practice, the internal realization, and of course our moral and ethical integration in the world, the practice which we do with ourselves in our spirituality. That is why the Agama tradition is not something new or recently invented, it is old and it is a sort of response of the yogis of India primarily to the ultra-ritualization and to ultra-formal uh, religion of practiced by the masters. The Agamas are, in Hinduism, sometimes known also as tantras, as tantric texts. So, Agama Yoga is definitely a tantric form of yoga. Just for your curiosity, because this tradition was so strong and so ancient, it generated inspiration in other traditions of humanity, and I will read for you, especially around the Indian cradle, other values of the word Agama in the spirituality of India and around. For example, in the Jain tradition, Jainism is a religion kind of contemporary to Buddhism, which is today surviving mostly in the western part of India, around the area of Bombay, and there the Agamas in Jainism are canonical texts of Jainism based on Mahavira's teachings. Mahavira is to Jainism where Buddha is to Buddhism. And Mahavira's preachings were orally compiled by his disciples into various sutras or texts, which were collectively called the Jain canonical or Agamic literature. It is significant that both Jainism and Buddhism, which were somehow taking a rebellion from the Hindu Vedic Brahmanic tradition which was so ritualized and so formal and becoming so artificial and alienated 
they pre prefer to preserve the name Agama. In Buddhism, an Agama, which is in Sanskrit a uh, like sacred word, as I said, and in Pali is simply translated as scripture, an Agama is a collection of early Buddhist scriptures which were preserved primarily in Chinese translation, with substantial material also surviving in Sanskrit, and lesser but still significant amounts surviving in the Gandhari and in Tibetan tradition. So, it represents also a pure form of especially the Mahayana tradition in Buddhism. In the Malay language from Malaysia, actually the word Agama through transmission, it lost its original meaning and it literally means religion. In, of course, in, Malay, in Malaysia it mostly refers to Islam, but it's a word which in common parlance it has come to mean religion. It's interesting that by a very strange consonance of words, even in the Greek language, Greeks had contact with India through Alexander the Great's time, just post-Buddha and post-Mahavira, but it's interesting that the word Agama in Greek can be easily translated as something which has no gender or no sex, the qualificative of Agama applying itself actually to the universal spirit, because it is only the spirit which transcends the masculine and the feminine, and thus it has no Gamma, no gender, no sexual characteristics. That's why Agama can mean non-duality, beyond gender. In a very limited understanding, it can also mean no sexuality, like celibacy, ascetic practices as well. Thus, when we define all the richness of the meanings of this word, then you can see that Agama is a very powerful word. It is one of the essential words of the Tantric tradition. And being in Agama Yoga, you are actually connected to some of the most powerful trends. In the coming interval, I'm going to outline for you the various tantric types of yoga which you find included in our school in the Agama Yoga style of teaching. First of all, everybody who studies scholarly the history of yoga, the typologies of yoga, notices that here in Agama Yoga we have an important component of what is called Nata Sampradaya, the school called Nata Sampradaya of India. Nata Sampradaya is a traditional school emerging in the 5th, 6th century AD, and it is the school of India which is responsible utmostly, 99% I would dare say, for everything which means Hatha Yoga, postures, pranayama, physical practices, mudras and bandhas, the practice of kundalini and kundalini yoga, the practice of healing through yoga, the healing effects of asanas using hatha yoga as a method of healing among others, while it is much more. Nata Sampradaya, it is that form of yoga which relates to Ayurveda, for example, in the famous Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which is a text of the tradition, the fifth chapter, the fifth and the last chapter of the Hatha Yoga Pradipika is a text which makes the clear link between the practice of Hatha Yoga and Ayurvedic treatments, Ayurvedic medical treatments. 
advising yoga practitioners how to use simple methods from Ayurveda, such as massaging the body with warm oil in which salt has been dissolved and other such recipes for compensating for the intense practice of yoga in case somebody practices yoga in an erroneous way without a guru and develops some disturbances due to wrongfully done yoga practice. So in Nata Sampradaya we find a lot of reference to the physical body, to the etheric body, to the energies, to the Ayurvedic typologies and others. In Nata Sampradaya we find the greatest samples of alchemy in the Indian culture. I don't know if any one of you bothered ever to study the alchemical traditions besides the Babylonian and Western alchemical tradition which are notorious in the West, there has been of course an Indian and a Chinese alchemical science, very developed. Uh, again, if you have no concept about it, it's really useless for me to start even describing what it was doing. The alchemy of yoga was about the use and sublimation of the body fluids, about soma, about prolonging lifespan and even looking into physical immortality. It was about different vegetal, animal, mineral and other preparations for influencing the body, for influencing the state of consciousness. For example, the famous beverage of the Vedic tradition, Soma, is a drink which is supposed to have a vegetal origin and which is supposed to extend almost indefinitely the lifespan and the youthfulness and at the same time it is an expander of the consciousness, creating a clear mind, an insightful mind. All these traditions are typical Nata Sampradaya traditions with its alchemy and with the insisting, insistence of the body, that in the body you have a fluid which is called ojas and you can sublime the ojas back into spirituality, that being the raw primary sexual energy, uh, and it can be sublime, transmuted and sublime, that in the human being there are some fluids, either material or made of energy, which are called soma, and which are related to soma chakra in the area of the mouth and of the palate, and that energy has this effect and that effect. All this, all this approach, which is half bodily, half Ayurvedic, half medical, and at the same time half magical and spiritual, this approach is the typical Nata Sampradaya tradition. Nata Sampradaya also goes in some forms of shamanism, forms of natural magic and shamanism. Again, sometimes with the use of Ayurvedic potions, herbal preparates. The best known creators of the Nata Sampradaya are of course Matsyendra, not Guru Matsyendra, the first Guru, directly inspired by Shiva and his disciple Goraksha or Goraknath, Gorakshanath, who is the second great author. Matsyendra and Goraksha are the fathers of the Nata Sampradaya and 99% of what is done today as Hatha Yoga, not only in Agama Yoga, but in the rest of the world, actually comes from Matsyendra and Goraksha. There is no scriptural authority describing the Halasana or the Vajrasana or the, you name it, Ardha Matsyendrasana for the case, 
which is outside of the Nata Sampradaya tradition. It's exclusively the Nata Sampradaya tradition that had this monopoly in the 19th and especially in the 20th century. Various gurus taking hold of parts and portions of this tradition. They spread it and thus we witness the explosion of the Hatha Yoga fad in the Western world. Most often not presented as a spiritual yoga, as a method of Kundalini, as a method of healing and transforming the consciousness, but presented rather as a fitness, entertainment, at the best a healing method, a method with healing balances. In Agama Yoga, we preserve the Nata Sampradaya, the original Hatha Yoga, in its traditional form as it is presented in Shiva Samhita, Giranda Samhita, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Goraksha Shataka, and other traditional texts of yoga. The difference, as most of you already know, but maybe you never really put your awareness on it or you never had words to put on it, the difference being, of course, that in Agama Yoga, you practice the traditional Hatha and Kundalini Yoga, which means you work with energies. You don't work only with the body, because the body is not just a piece of flesh isolated from the rest. The body interacts with the etheric body, the body interacts with the astral body, the body interacts with the mental body, and thus when you do a chakrasana, things are happening in your etheric body, things are happening in your astral body, things are happening in your mental body even, and thus yoga is much deeper than just a simple physical practice. It is very unfortunate that while in Agama Yoga we try to preserve this, it has been forgotten in so many places, and people would rather speak about energy when they do Tai Chi, when they do Qigong, when they do Raiki, when they do even Aikido, or other things which are outside of India, but funnily enough, in the very Indian Yoga, in the very Indian tradition where prana is a basic concept and the life force and the energy is well known, exactly this link between the body and the energy is unfortunately forgotten out of ignorance, not out of ill will, of course, by many people. For many of you, this sounds as an easy revelation, but this is something which is not at all easy karmically. It's something which is precariously preserved by Agama Yoga and perhaps a few other schools of Tantric Yoga in this world precisely because it has intense karmic implications. The first man who brought to the West the knowledge of Hatha Yoga actually not being gymnastic but being related with energies and Kundalini was an American author called Theos Bernard, who wrote a very legendary book called Hatha Yoga. And Theos Bernard, after he published his book where he was describing his own practice of Paschimottanasana, and then he was quoting what has Geranda Samhita to say about Paschimottanasana? What has Hatha Yoga Pradipika to say about Paschimottanasana? What has Shiva Samhita got to say about Paschimottanasana? And in this way, he was showing exactly this magic, subtle power of it. And funnily enough, again, Theos Bernard, after he published this book, died in a very freak accident while in India, accidentally shot during a riot. 
by a stray bullet, and mo most metaphysicians claim that he lost his life because he took upon himself too much karma by revealing exactly this information to a world which had never heard about it. He is not the only one. Other people did just the same move in about the same time, like in France, Julien Tondriot, a famous parapsychologist and researcher, wrote a guide of yoga in which for the first time he included the a few asanas, some 10, 12 asanas, not as many as you learn by far, some 10, 12 asanas describing at the same time the chakra on which they worked. Not describing what kind of energy, cosmic or telluric, not describing how the energy circulates through the body, just this, Supta Vajrasana works on Manipura Chakra. And Julien Tondriot also died in a freak accident. And he, these two names are not the only two of those who tried to make great breakthroughs in yoga. And they had to endure some karmic backfire because of this. On the other hand, on the bright side, Swami Shivananda in his book Kundalini Yoga published some of these things. Again, a limited amount. And he did not die in any freak accident. He lived till old age as a guru and taught many generations of students. Swami Satyananda of Bihar School of Yoga also took over this lore and even expanded it. And he also lived a long, fruitful life as a spiritual teacher. So I'm not trying to imply that this is deadly knowledge, but I'm simply trying to show that many people take it lightly. Like, oh, we came to Agama and we paid a couple of bucks and we learned about the Padahastasana activates your Muladhara Chakra and the energy is passing through your legs and you take it for granted and you think that's easy. But when, if you will take the pain to search the yoga literature, you will see that this information is almost inexistent in the yoga literature. Even Agama does not intend to publish a book on this and to make it a main uh, trend type of yoga book. Like, look what's missing from the other yoga books. Precisely because karmically sensitive information has its own history, has its own economy. Therefore, first of all, in our school, in Agama Yoga, we encounter a lot of these Nata Sampradaya types of practices, which I describe in some detail. Later, with your questions in late night meetings and other meetings that we have, you can ask for details or you can do your own research. The second main pillar of the teachings which constitute what we call today Agama Yoga is the famous Kaula tradition. The Kaula tradition is a very, very rare tantric tradition, especially of North India and Northeastern India. The Kaula tradition is the primary source of the Mahavidya tradition, of the tradition of the ten Mahavidyas, the cosmic powers, the worship of the feminine aspect, using feminine symbols for the different forces of nature, such as time, space, and others. It's a highly symbolic system, which is very much like the Vajrayana of the Buddhists. It's not a coincidence that it's on the Himalaya. And on the Indian side of the Himalayas, you have the Kaula tradition. On the northern side of the Himalayas, you have the Vajrayana, the Tibetan tradition. They all share the same thing, only the Tibetans put it in Buddhist formalism, and the Indians kept it in their Hindu 
Indian formalism. The Mahavidya, the Kaula tradition, is very, very powerful. It is containing, besides this Mahavidya thing, generally all the aspects of Shaktism, the worship of Shakti, the understanding of the feminine nature, the understanding of the feminine energy, which is one of the very, very, very big gaps in Indian spirituality and in the world spirituality, where because of practicing non-tantric forms of spirituality, the, the feminine element has always been considered as dangerous, as the enemy, because the feminine aspect is Maya, it is Samsara, and thus it is Prakriti, it is more or less the enemy, the useless part of reality. In Tantra, especially in the Kaula tradition, this comes back with a vengeance, and on the contrary, the Shakti aspect is brought back to its validity, and we understand how many things in the surrounding reality are actually of the nature of Shakti, and then how to relate to them. In the Kaula tradition, you find also, it's one of the best known traditions with about sexual practices, sexual yoga, sexual tantra. There are sexual practices in Nata Sampradaya. The texts of Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga clearly mention sexual practices like Vajroli Mudra and others. But the Kaula tradition goes away from the just Hatha Yoga aspect of it, that you squeeze some muscles, you send the energy up, and all the purely engineering technological aspects of it, the mechanics of it, and it goes more into the mystical aspects of it, the mystical sexuality, the spiritualized sexuality, the magic sexuality. The Kaulas were great, great champions of spiritual sexuality, of magic sexuality, and this was one of the reasons for which they kept very secret, very secret. There exists a rare brochure written, actually a couple of brochures written by an English woman more than a hundred years ago. She was called Elizabeth Sharpie, like the Japanese electronics firm Sharp, but with an E in the end. And Elizabeth Sharpie wrote uh, some provocative things. She was initiated in Kaula Tantra at a time where the Victorian society was ruling still. And she wrote a booklet called The Mysteries of the Kaula Schools and of the Red Hat Lamas. So she mixed some Tibetan Buddhist with the Kaula School. And uh, another brochure about sort of immaculate conception, conception of babies with the power of the mind. And those traditions are very mysterious. Uh, Kaula Tantra has been much coveted. Even the notorious Alistair Crowley, the black magician of sad fame, inspired most of his sexual practices from the knowledge of some Kaula Tantra technology and text, which he picked up when, while he traveled to India and the Himalayas as a mountaineer, and at the same time as a young man interested in occultism and spiritual sciences. And it was his karmic chance to lay hands on a secret Kaula text, where from where he learned most of the sexual magic, which later he practiced like a brand of his own in the Western world. So this is why I say the Kaula tradition is very secret, very underground. Abhinava Gupta in the 10th century, arguably the greatest tantric master of all Indian history and tradition, he claimed that he got his enlightenment 
with his guru from the Kaula tradition. His Kaula guru, so a tantric from the Kaula guru who taught him things, he, with using those methods, he reached samadhi and he reached his enlightenment in that, in this life where he was Gupta. And thus the Kaula tradition is known as very potent, unfortunately because the Muslim tradition was rigid to sexuality the tantric way, and the Portuguese Catholics who had an influence in India, and later the British Protestantism and Puritanism, Calvinism, that ruled in India, all of these were severely adverse to Hinduism as considering it a form of heathen paganism, and in a heathen paganism, a sexual tradition is doubly contentable and despicable. So all these, they had a real bitter tooth against any form of sexual tantra. And thus, sexual tantra and the kaulas were specifically persecuted. There was a moment in the time of the British Raj where the British police in India had among its tasks the eradication of the kaulas. They were having special actions, it was on the agenda of the police, to expel the kaulas. Why? For the mayor think that they were practicing sexual practices and sexual rituals, and uh, the British Puritanism considered that a heathen fornication, a pagan uh, um, abominable use of sex, and so on which was on top of the Indian culture being non-Christian and thus heathen through essence. And thus, the Kaulas were specifically persecuted and very little Kaula practice survives today. In Agama, we have such practices. The Kaulas used yantras. The use of yantras of geometrical diagrams is most developed for the Kaulas. They, they used ritual practices as well. And uh, in this tradition, there are teachings in Agama Yoga for people interested in Mahavidyas, for people interested in the use of Yantras, for people used in the, interested in the use of sexual yoga and taking it to a spiritual level. Here is where the Kaula tradition kicks in, and this is part of the treasure that we are sheltering here in Agama Yoga. Finally, the third great pillar of Agama Yoga, of what is Agama Yoga, is our practice and our sharing of the Trika tradition, as it is called usually the Kashmiri Shaivism, which is, according to my personal opinion, and not only, many scholars have expressed this, which is the very top of the mysticism of India. There are top-level scholars who claimed and undersigned this statement that when you research it, the Kashmiri Shaivism nickname Trika is actually the top product of the Indian mysticism. Don't forget that the Indian spirituality has generated spiritual things for more than five, six thousand years, from the Vedas to the Puranas and to the Upanishads and Samhitas and Brahmanas, and texts over texts of spirituality and religions such as the Brahmanism and the Hinduism and the Vedanta and the Jainism and the Buddhism and so many other things are in the Indian cradle, even exported to other countries and adopted there as Tibetan yoga and Tibetan Buddhism and others. 
That's just an example. And therefore, to say that something is the top product, the top-notch product of the Indian spirituality with the responsibility of a scholar that has studied and knows what they are talking about is really a huge statement. I personally subscribe to this, the Trika, the Kashmiri Shaivism being our core tradition in terms of metaphysics. Like, if you are asking us, in terms of metaphysics, in terms of philosophy, in terms of how do you guys in Agama Yoga see the world, how do you understand the universe, the vision which we share in this school is the vision of Kashmiri Shaivism, the vision of Trika, which is the ultimate non-dualistic tradition of India, and as far as my knowledge goes today, it is the ultimate non-dualistic tradition of this planet, because according to my understanding, I have never met any spiritual non-dualistic tradition which would come close to the statements, to the practices of the Kashmiri Shaivism. We are very fortunate that in Agama Yoga, we gathered this rare tradition, which is a Kashmirian tradition. As you know, Kashmir as a source of yoga doesn't even exist anymore today because of ethnic struggle, war, cleansing, and all the things which happened there. Kashmir is only, it is called Kashmiri Shaivism because it appeared in Kashmir, but it doesn't happen in Kashmir anymore. And because of this, it is a miracle that the Kashmiri Shaivism, in one of its final outbursts, it reached also Agama, and here there are people who know it, study it, practice it, and most important, practice it, because the practice of Kashmiri Shaivistic teachings are, again, core practices in spirituality. Among other teachings in Kashmiri Shaivism, we have the fundamental texts of Tantric meditation, the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, as well as other fundamental texts, Agamas, Agamic texts, and this is our most beloved tradition in the Agama Yoga. At least personally for me, the Kashmiri Shaivism has holds a place of honor. It is also that my good friend Sahajananda, when teaching the Tridaya Yoga teachings, he is also using to a vast majority teachings from Kashmiri Shaivism, because the very concept of Hridaya as the spiritual heart which represents the ultimate reality, the ultimate essence of the human being, is actually a pure Trika, pure Kashmiri Shaivistic concept. So even in the Hridaya, we are sharing this fundamental aspect coming from Kashmiri Shaivism. As you know, our school, some of you know and some of you here now, in Agama Yoga you find embedded different aspects, different other aspects of yoga, such as, for example, Tibetan yoga. There are aspects of yoga which have been exported to Tibet, and then starting with the 12th century, forgotten in India due to the Mughal rule and invasion and to the Western mixture in the Indian life. There are yoga aspects, such as one of them, the art of dying, the Tibetan book of the dead, the chod, and other specific Tibetan methods of dealing with death and dying, which have been exported from India, lost in India, 
just known in a very cursory way, known in a very <coughs> oral tradition way, and they exist in Tibetan yoga. And since I have taken studies in Tibetan yoga with Tibetan lamas as well, and with yogis from Tibet, and due to other reasons, we have a full understanding of this, and this Tibetan yoga once lost, it is re-imported in the lore of yoga, especially some of the aspects which are of utmost practical importance, such as the art of dying is definitely a subject of ultimate, of, of high importance, and not only. That is why in Agama Yoga you discover also a treasury of Tibetan yoga, from practices like Tumo and the way of understanding Kundalini Yoga of the Tibetans, and finishing with the art of dreaming, with the lucid dreaming and the yoga of the sleep and conscious sleeping and dreaming and last but not least again the art of dying, the yoga of the moment of dying, the Bardo Todol and the others, the Kala Chakra, the yoga of making contact with Shambhala, the five Dhyani Buddha, the yoga of the five elements and a few other priceless forms of yoga, which we, in this synthesis of Agama Yoga, we have them grafted back into the trunk of yoga, grafted back into the body of yoga, where they belonged from the very beginning. Also, in Agama Yoga, you find an openness to all the forms of spirituality, due to the fact that we have here a metaphysical understanding <clears throat> we value a lot this emphasis on metaphysics, this being, this saying simply that the truth is one. There is no higher religion than the truth. There is one truth and human beings nickname it with various names. It is not possible in this universe to have two things which are infinite, eternal, perfect, immutable and having the nature of the absolute. Whenever you say that something is absolute, that can be only one. And therefore, if the Buddhists define something which they call absolute, and the Christians define something which they call absolute, and the Vedantins of India define something which they call absolute, and the Kashmiri Shaivas define something which they call absolute, Metaphysics says it's the same one thing, indescribable and way beyond words and concepts, and there exist lots of nicknames and lots of tentative descriptions of one and the same thing. But the truth is one. There cannot be two truths. And thus, in, in, in the ultimate meaning of the things. And that is why in metaphysics we think that all the bona fide traditions say the same thing in various ways. That's why all the traditions, all the spiritualities, and I insist on the Latin formula, all the bona fide, bona fide means in good faith, because there are religions which are aberrant. I don't want to upset anybody by nominating any of them, but we all know that there exist sects and cults and bizarre things which are completely, no sane person would con will call them spiritual or consider them as a spiritual path. There are people who worship Elvis Presley, 
There are people who cut off their testicles and committed collective suicide because they thought their souls were going to be taken by the hail Bob Comet. And, like, there exists a lot of absurd, not everything which proclaims itself to be spirituality is a bona fide spirituality. Yes, Theravada Buddhism that you see 500 meters from here is a bona fide spiritual tradition. It existed for 25 centuries. It produced enlightened masters. It has methods which are still active. And thus, that is a spirituality which can be considered. And again, to my metaphysical statement, all the bona fide traditions of spirituality speak about the same thing, only in a different language and in a different way. All of them describe spiritual practices which do have an effect. Thus, as yogis, we place ourselves at the intersection of these traditions. We are neither Christian, nor Jain, nor Hindu, nor Buddhist, nor Sufi, nor anything, but we are practical yogis. We don't really like to create confusion and conflict between spiritualities. We like to sit down and rise our energy to the crown chakra and enjoy practically and directly states of higher consciousness. Our goal is practical. And that is why in Agama Yoga a characteristic, because of our metaphysical approach, because of our yogic practical angle, and perhaps because we are such an international community after all, we have an openness towards all the traditions. If there is something which you can learn from the Sufi Zikr or from the Sufi Dervish dance, if there is something that you can practice and learn from the prayer of the heart of the Hesychasts, if there is something which you can take from the practice of, I don't know whom, the Vipassana of the Theravada Buddhists, take it and use it. We are ready to give it back its practical character, its experimental yogic character, and do practice for obtaining the results. Thus, in Agama Yoga, you will not find very much of this religious sectarianism that only Hindu things, only Tibetan things, only Christian things, only this and only that. That's why our behaviors are also not sectarian in the meaning that we don't preach special haircuts, we don't preach special clothing, we don't preach that you should eat garlic or not eat garlic, we don't preach such things which are very much of a cultural, ethnic, religious and other things. Of course, the fact that many people may choose to be, for example, vegetarian, it's a completely different thing because that we don't consider a religious thing. We consider it purely a matter of personal decision of everybody for feeling better, for doing spiritual practice, and for practicing a form of non-violence, a form of ethical and moral self-discipline towards animal life on this planet. Will you find in Agama Yoga also a scientific and rational approach? It is no doubt due to the fact that many of us in Agama Yoga have a Western rational education. There are many people who have university degrees and who are teachers of high level in Agama Yoga. As such, we value very much the rationalism, like to preach yoga technology, which is completely brain-dead, absurd, ridiculous, chaotic, and is not part of Agama Yoga, 
in Agama Yoga, I was taught by my early teachers in yoga that the Western culture and generally the modern culture has become extremely dependent on reason. Old gurus, ancient gurus would tell you, go in a cave or in a hermitage, practice Paschimottanasana and Samavriti Pranayama like this and I'll come and meet me next year, I'll see how you are doing. But why, how, what's happening? Huh? You just have to have faith and confidence in me. Go and practice and you will see. And if you trust your guru, you go and practice and you get the results. Modern Westerners, and not only, they first of all need to understand what's happening, what chakra, what energy, what kosha, what body, how will it work, what should I expect, in how long time will this give results, what will be the first signs of my success in practice, what will come next, and all sorts of intellectual questions which before they are alleviated, the person will not find the motivation to practice, simply saying this is too weird, I don't really know where this is going, I would like first to understand. Agama Yoga is not a yoga which only explains to you how to do things, but it explains to you also why things work. Thus, we are a yoga which fortunately has got this rational, metaphysical, sometimes scientifical, wherever possible, explanation of the mechanisms. This is a yoga with energies. The energy, the, co the much coveted chi, mana, prana, whatever you call it, it's there. It's present. It's not a utopia. It circulates from this point to this point. You absorb it from the sky. You absorb it from the earth. You absorb it, transmit it like this. It moves in your aura like thought forms. It does, it has a color, has a frequency of vibration, and all the rest of the things. Working with energy makes things even more rational and easy to understand because people can picture in their mind's eye what is an energy flowing from you to each other, from the universe to you, and moreover, working with energy has some elementary rules. Everybody who has worked with electromagnetism, with electricity, with magnetism and similar things knows elementary how energy works and how it transmits and exactly the same rules apply in yoga as well and that's why this makes it very easy to understand and very easy to picture it with your mind's eye. When you have a clear representation in your mind, automatically your yoga works much better because you see it clearly. I met people doing traditional forms of yoga and already becoming able to produce some major effects in their energy field and yet they were not fully aware of the energy and they were not able to explain what they were doing and how they were doing it. They just knew that by doing this, this effect will appear but they were missing completely the awareness of the mechanism and the rational understanding which means putting it in words being able to explain it in concepts so that even somebody who doesn't see it or have it can at least understand intellectually what's happening or what to expect. This is a major characteristic of Adama Yoga which makes all of you be so many of you present here because this is a successful yoga, this is a successful approach to the Western mentality and to the modern mentality that you do yoga in a rational and as scientific as possible way. This is the yoga which uses the chakras, 
the treasure of the tantric tradition, the chakras, this major revelation, so much adulterated, so much polluted nowadays, and in Agama Yoga we have perhaps the most perfect knowledge of chakras of any school in this world. I approximately know what yoga is being taught across this planet. I know approximately every single orientation and direction of yoga because I've been in this world for so many years. And I'm saying, therefore, in Agama Yoga, the knowledge of the chakras, of the five bodies, of the relationships between them, of the economy of all this energy thing is as good as it gets. I personally have never seen anything better or more clear in any tradition of yoga. I would like to see if I find one where I can learn some additional things there. Finally, here we have the use of mantras in the traditional way, the legendary mantras, the notorious mantras. I was appalled when I traveled through India the first time and then in the next years when I even lived in India to see that the mantras, the word mantra is almost equivalent to yoga, equivalent to Hinduism, and most people didn't know how to use mantras. And thus, um, that we have here the use of mantras according or together with the yantras from the Kaula tradition, like very clear tantric mechanisms. There is a text of tantric tradition which says, Mantra, Yantra, Tantra. Mantra and Yantra is what makes Tantra. So if you say about Tantric Yoga, it's impossible to figure a Tantric Yoga without Mantra and Yantra, because Mantra and Yantra are the terms which define the very practice of Tantra. And thus, the Mantras and the Yantras are very powerful in this school. The sublimation and the use of the sexual energy which in the more non-sexual forms of yoga is overlooked. Of course, you find here in the school also the including of the classical forms of yoga. As some of you are aware, I had two seasons of lecturing in satsang on the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. I made uh, many, many, I don't even know how many lectures, tens of lectures on the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali explaining it sutra by sutra. This year I will start with the presentation and the explanations of Bhagavad Gita, another fundamental text of Indian spirituality and of Karma Yoga. And as such, of course, while we are a school of Tantric Yoga, we do not lose out of sight methods from Vedanta, methods from the Gita and Karma Yoga and other, the Patanjali Yoga, the classic yoga of Patanjali, and other and other methods. In a word, we can see that Agama Yoga is a very complex and it is a very complete system of yoga. We see a lot of success. We have advanced pupils in Agama Yoga who have already reached states of Samadhi and even states of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, which is the turning point Samadhi in the tradition of yoga. That is why we know that this is a living tradition which works it works from the levels of health and improvement of daily life and for people who look into the paranormal and for people who are interested in their spiritual potential and in the awakening. Thus, Agama Yoga is an amazing form of yoga in our opinion. It should be obvious to everybody that I personally think that Agama Yoga 
is the best which I have encountered because if it wouldn't have been the best, I would have tried, I would have found something which would have looked like better. Automatically, I would have learned that thing in my sincere desire to learn the best, the strongest, the deepest. As one of our pupils in the teacher training programs used to say a couple of years ago, paraphrasing uh, advertising from the Carlsberg beer from Denmark, uh, by using the subdued tone of Scandinavian advertising, he said, Agama Yoga is probably the best yoga in the world. So, in this way, again, we have a great love for this tradition, which has so much to offer, and you, for a shorter or longer time, are becoming part, are sharing in this precious tradition, and we hope that some of you will transmit it further to the next generations, and thus Agama Yoga and all the treasures of the Tantric Yoga will actually be perpetuated for at least one more generation, and uh, until a time, perhaps, where humanity gets wiser and more natural, more harmonious, and it will start using the wisdom of Yoga in a more constructive way, in a more humane way. With this, we are going to stop here for tonight, for the discourse of tonight. I wish you all to enjoy what is left of this beautiful evening, and Namaste to all of you. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.